talk about non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI in this podcast, we are most frequently referring to the most common forms of NSSI, like cutting or biting or hitting or burning oneself. But what about rarer, more significant forms of self-injury, like those requiring significant medical attention or self-injury to the face, breasts, or genitals? And how do these forms of what can be called atypical severe self-injury differ in function and severity for more common forms of self-injury? What about self-harming behaviors that don't fit neatly within our typical definition of NSSI, like ingesting foreign objects to intentionally cause internal injury? And are there clinical guidelines for treating individuals who engage in atypical severe NSSI? To answer these questions and to talk about this rare form of self-injury, I am joined today from Worcester, Massachusetts by Dr. Barry Walsh. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. I was a grad student when I first heard Dr. Barry Walsh speak on self-injury. He had just published the first edition of his seminal book, Treating Self-Injury, A Practical Guide, and I knew I needed to hear him speak in person when I saw he was coming to town. I've always been one of those guys who often lingers after presentations in order to meet the presenter and ask more questions. So in true fashion, I did just that. And today, some 15 years later, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Walsh, who is the 2021 IISS Invited Fellow, a title which honors his extensive contributions to the field of self-injury and reflects the highest recognition of his many contributions, notably his seminal work and publications in the areas of assessment and treatment of self-injury. Dr. Walsh has authored three books on NSSI, including the second edition of Treating Self-Injury, A Practical Guide, which we are giving away at the end of this month, so stay tuned at the end of today's episode to learn how you can win a free copy. Dr. Walsh is Executive Director Emeritus and Senior Clinical Consultant at Open Sky Community Services, a human service agency headquartered in Worcester, Massachusetts. Dr. Walsh is also a lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School at Cambridge Health Alliance in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today's episode includes a sensitive conversation with emotionally heavy content, real-life stories, and discussion about severe forms of self-injury. This is not to say that less severe forms of self-injury merit less attention or a focus of comparison in any way. Self-injury in any form deserves our full empathy, compassion, validation, and understanding. But today specifically, if you're having a rough day emotionally, give us a pause and come back to listen when you're ready. We'll be here. Welcome, Dr. Walsh. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Nicholas. It's good to see you again. It's good uh, to see you. We've been missing each other at conferences because they, they're not happening. Yeah, with COVID, it throws us all off. So definitely miss yeah, seeing you and hearing your, your excellent talks in person. How did you first become interested in researching and treating self-injury? I mean, you are you know, one of the leaders in this field for decades now, one of the originators. So how did you first become interested in self-injury? Thanks for the kind words. I was working at a state hospital in the mid 70s on an adolescent unit and uh, they were presenting with self-injury. So immediately I'd been working at a family service agency before that and I hit the big leagues when I hit the state hospital. Let's face it, the behaviors were a little more severe. So uh, here were all these people hurting themselves and it was counter to human instinct to deliberately hurt yourself, you know? So I was immensely puzzled by that and I would ask them what became my favorite question to ask people who self-injure, which is, what does it do for you? 
Many of them talked about getting relief from it, which remains one of the major aspects of understanding self-injury is people get emotion, emotional relief. At any rate, then I went back to get my doctorate and I uh, had to come up like the rest of us with a dissertation topic that you could live with. And I selected self-injury because there was a clinical literature at the time that was largely coming out of psychiatric inpatient units. It was interesting. And so I, I then drew a sample from McLean Hospital, a famous mental hospital in Belmont, Mass. My own agency, UMass in Worcester, they had a psych unit uh, there. And uh, another human service agency, I drew my sample from there and studied self-injury. That led... I went to a conference and presented on self-injury and Guilford Press came up to me and said, do you want to do a book on self-injury? And uh, naturally I said, uh, yeah. And then, you know, it all kind of plateaued for a while. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, self-injury exploded into the general population in a very shocking counterintuitive way. All of a sudden it was prominent in middle schools, high schools, universities. Janice Whitlock found 17% of her sample at Cornell and Princeton, these elite Ivy League schools, 17% of them had been self-injuring. And so the whole self-injuring thing took off all over again with a new client population. So oddly enough, my dissertation topic has become a career-long specialization. What do you think led to the increase in, I guess, prevalence or knowledge about self-injury in the 90s? Well, uh, to be blunt, people don't care too much about people in state hospitals. They're a low priority. When it became the kid in the middle school, your kid or your kid's best friend, or you're running into 17% of college kids are self-injuring, all of a sudden people are real interested because uh, it's a much more closer to home population. It's right next door, whereas the state hospital for most people is not right next door. So we're talking the prevalence rate in the general population and how we think about non-suicidal self-injury being typical forms of maybe cutting or hitting oneself, burning oneself. We talk a lot about that in episode one, but you have recently come about discussing and writing about what you have termed atypical severe non-suicidal self-injury. How is this atypical severe NSSI or atypical severe self-injury different than what we most commonly mean when we reference non-suicidal self-injury? Yeah, well, that's a really important question. And I've really become a specialist on atypical severe, in part because when I go to self-injury or su suicide conferences, most of the people are reporting on college samples or samples from the community. And my clientele are people coming out of state hospitals or psychiatric hospitals, going into residential programs or supported housing programs getting a fair amount of massive support to be able to survive in the community because they have complex mental health challenges. So the literature on self-injury points to the fact that 90% or more of people who self-injure do a level of damage that doesn't require medical intervention. Well, I'm seeing all these clients that do require medical intervention, and they strike me as different than the community samples. So it's not unusual that I'll be working with someone or my agency will be working with someone who cuts themselves and needs 20 sutures or 40 sutures to repair the damage. And I'm looking at them and I'm looking at the middle school student who scratches himself or herself with a, a little blade from a pencil sharpener. And I say, these are different breeds of cat. This is something different going on here. 
So my conclusion became that for the aspect of atypical severe self-injury that involved those who got needed medical attention, it didn't take a genius to interpret that as suggesting somebody had a much greater level of distress, you know, to do 20 sutures worth of cutting or to burn yourself in a way that requires a skin graft or other kinds of major medical intervention, burning yourself uh, and so on. I was looking at this and saying, this is not what certain researchers are recalling. Uh, you know, they would talk about superficial cuts on the arm. They call that severe self-injury. I'd say, wait a minute, maybe in your population, but not in mine. And uh, I expanded from, from self-injury requiring medical intervention. I added a couple of other categories. One is unusual body parts. And those body parts are face, eyes, breast, genitals, and anus. Most people don't hurt those body parts, and there are various reasons why they're especially alarming, but let me just take one example, people self-injuring the face. Now, that struck me as very alarming because we all present to the world with our faces. You know, we don't get recognized by our feet or our elbows. It's our faces. And when people scar, start scarring up the face, it suggests such an alarming level of social disconnection. Like, what's going on here? They don't care how they look. They don't care if people recoil due to facial scars. So I'll give you an example. I was treating somebody in a state hospital a couple of years ago, and she was somebody who banged her head on walls and floors and the edges of tables very, very hard. And she developed right here on her forehead a callus that, or a, a wound, a scar tissue that looked like about half a doorknob right in the middle of her head. And... As I was treating her, I asked her at some point if she cared about the fact that it affected her appearance. She said, I want it to affect my appearance. I don't want anybody to find me attractive. And that was derived from her trauma history of sexual abuse. And frankly, most of the people that I treat with atypical severe self-injury have two things in common. One of them is a biologically inherited predisposition to mental illness a lot of mental health difficulties in the family tree, and then add into that trauma. And then the third category that I added to atypical severe much later in the game is foreign body ingestion. Foreign body ingestion, you know, people swallow coins, razor blades, pencils, toothbrushes, pebbles, buttons, random things they find in a ward or in the community. 80 to 90% of them pass without medical intervention. But it's a very, very unusual behavior. And I've generally found it in people in hospitals or correctional facilities, but sometimes in group homes. But people who present with it tend to have some pretty significant impairments. It's a puzzling one because unlike other forms of self-injury, there's no immediately visible tissue damage. You cut yourself, there's a wound. You burn yourself, there's a wound. You bang your head, there's a contusion. If you swallow stuff, it's invisible. But it strikes me as atypical severe because objects can do internal micro damage. They can become impacted. Sometimes, not infrequently, they require endoscopies, which some people have had so many endoscopies, the digestive tract is damaged. There's a lot of tissue damage because they've had so many scopes down their throats. But the other intriguing thing about foreign body ingestion is almost nobody dies from it. So doesn't look to be a suicidal behavior. Sure doesn't seem like common low lethality, wrist cuts, scratching, self-hitting, punching walls, and all that stuff. Seems to be a lot more severe than that. 
So where does that put it? Somewhere between suicide and common low lethality self-injury. Therefore, I let it join the club with the other two. So that's kind of a preliminary explanation of it. Okay. So foreign body ingestion, you differentiate from pica, where they also ingest non-nutritive substances, but not necessarily to harm themselves. I do. I do differentiate it from pica. In fact, I presented at a conference once where the guy before me talked on pica in people with developmental disabilities. I talked on FBI immediately afterwards. We could really differentiate between the two. The people I'm talking about, they don't have developmental disabilities. It is not some sort of an automatic ingesting kind of behavior. It doesn't have to do with anything to do with eating, in my opinion. Uh, So I would differentiate it from pica. At some point, too, we can talk about the functions of the behavior because foreign body ingestion is different from almost every other type of self-injury, in my opinion, in terms of its functions. Mm -hmm. And you know who taught me that? The people swallowing stuff. In fact, most of the major insights I've learned about self-injury over the years, I learned from my clients. And in fact, I'll be talking about that at the IISSS conference remotely this summer out of Vienna. It's a good plug for the conference in June, by the way, for everyone listening. So you've delineated three subtypes of atypical, severe, non-suicidal self-injury. One, behaviors that require medical attention. Two, the unusual body areas. And three, foreign body ingestion, or FBI for short. How is atypical, severe self-injury different than, say, self-mutilation? Well, self-mutilation is an old term. Mm -hmm. My first book was entitled Self-Mutilation Theory, Research, and Treatment, because that was the current term. But self-mutilation as a term has by and large gone away, and I think that's quite appropriate. I think the reason it went away is advocates for mental health, self-advocates, who considered the term to be pejorative and stigmatizing. Mm. And I agree with them. Particularly if you look at the data, if 90% or more of people who self-injure do a level of damage that doesn't require medical attention, why are we using a word like mutilate? Because mutilate means lop off, permanently disfigure. It's a very, very radical term. So when the field shifted, it made total sense to me. And uh, I think it was Matt Nock at Harvard who coined non-suicidal self-injury The advantage of that term, of course, is right in the term, you know that you're talking about self-injury that's not about suicide. I do use the term self-mutilation occasionally. I use it for what Favatsa called major self-mutilation. And those are extremely rare behaviors like autocastration or self-enucleation, extremely unpleasant behaviors. I've just been writing something on atypical severe lately and uh, came across a uh, citation that said, Self-enucleation, which means content warning to listeners, means to remove your eyeball. He said it occurs in about one in 30 million people. That's how rare it is. So I still use the term for those extremely rare catastrophic actions, but that's not what I'm talking about because in my client population, I did a study of 456 individuals served at my agency and 7% of them, 30 plus, presented with atypical severe injury. So 7% is a lot different than one in 30 million. In my agency, there were lots of these folks presenting with those behaviors. 
some people, when they're talking about self-injury in reference to themselves, so individuals with lived experience, I know some will still prefer the term self-mutilation, and they'll, that's how they'll reference their own behavior with themselves. And typically, I, I'll respect that because that's how they want to describe it. But as a psychologist, and it sounds like you as well, you won't necessarily use that term in reference to someone. But if that's how they choose to describe themselves, then we respect that. Yeah, I try to be respectful of individuals' language. One of the young women that I treated who overcame her self-injury, and she now works as a peer support specialist for the Department of Mental Health in Massachusetts. Sometimes we present together, and she objects to the word client and chastises me that I must use the word individual. She's quite assertive. I try to uh, honor her request. I remember even in graduate school, and still, do we you know, use the term client, consumer, patient, individual? Yeah, over the years, there's been many different terminology changes. Earlier, you had referenced function of each of these behaviors. And on this podcast, we've actually talked about functions that behaviors like self-injury have for people, especially in episode one and in episode 10, when we recently talked with Dr. Peggy Andover about the treatment for self-injurious behaviors and really analyzing the function that these behaviors serve. People do things for a reason, including self-injury. And you've, again, mentioned three subtypes of atypical severe self-injury. And you have learned, it was what you're sharing, these functions from the these individuals that you work with and have treated over the years, each of them has different functions. Let's start with the atypical severe self-injury subtype that requires medical attention. What function does atypical severe self-injury in those cases serve that you have found? Right. Well, if you use Matt Knox's two-by-two table, he talks about two forms of internal psychological reinforcers and then two other forms of interpersonal environmental reinforcers. And the research has shown over and over again that the main reason people self-injure, most self-injury, is about affect regulation and reducing negative emotion. So I believe that's in play for atypical severe. But what happens is some people, there's different explanations, but for some people, they've done it so much. The pain response is markedly diminished, and they have to do more severe damage to get the same relief. However, I also mentioned that many of these folks have complex trauma histories. Some of them hate their bodies. Some of them view their bodies as contaminated and dirty, as disgusting, because of what's been done to their bodies. And the most negative experiences in their entire lives have involved their bodies, namely abuse. And some of them end up with oddly reinforcing satisfaction at defacing and harming the body. It's like they say, the pain feels good, I deserve it. So that's another internal reinforcer, but it's one of those paradoxes of self-destructive behavior that we run into in which the pain is positive or the defacing is what I deserve. So that's internal as well. And the body parts, they have important symbolic significance. People who are hurt their breasts and genitals generally are involved in some sort of trauma reenactment. They're attacking parts that have been attacked by others. And I believe they're trying to work their way and out of and resolve those dilemmas. Eyes uh, tend to be associated with psychosis. Breasts and genitals can be associated with psychosis and religious preoccupations and delusions and command hallucinations. But they're also often related to complex trauma, as is anus. So these are unpleasant things to talk about. For those types of atypical severe self-injury, there's almost no social reinforcers. Because if you do 20 sutures, who's going to reward that? Or if you're hurting your eyes or your genitals, who's going to reinforce that socially? Nobody. 
So it stood up incredible internal distress and confusion. Those are the functions there. Internal affect relief or some sort of very distorted satisfaction, positive reinforcement around harming yourself. But then there's foreign body ingestion, which is different from all the others. And here's, this is what I learned from people who swallow stuff. And I've talked to a lot of them in state hospitals, group homes, and some in correctional facilities. And I asked them the same question, what does it do for you? And I asked people the same question, whether they're hurting their genitals or scratching their wrists with a paperclip or swallowing a razor blade. It's the same question every time because it's a respectful question, non-judgmental and low key. It conveys the message I'm comfortable with this topic. I tell them explicitly, I'm non-judgmental. I just want to understand what's going on with you. So when I asked the people who are swallowing stuff, I learned that they're largely doing it for social reinforcers. Not that anybody's rewarding it or applauding it. More, they do it to escape a toxic environment. So the state hospital people say, I do it to get the hell off this ward and go to medical. And the correctional folks say, I get out of the cell block where some asshole is going to rape me or assault me, and I go to medical where I'm safe for a while. And people in the group homes may say, group home politics, all the kids aren't getting along, the staff are setting limits all the time, I'm getting frustrated with all these rules, they blow out of there to be at the ER for a couple of days or maybe go into a psych hospital for swallowing something. Not unusual, they'll go into a hospital for a couple of days until the object they swallow passes. A lot of times the appropriate treatment for foreign body ingestion is as the gastroenterologists indicate, a conservative course is warranted. Don't go in with a scope unless absolutely necessary, such as it appears something's impacted. Let them pass, 90% pass. But where do they pass? In a different environment than one they want, they're sick of, they want to get out of. And sometimes when I'll consult in a state hospital about someone who's doing really persistent foreign body ingestion, one of the first recommendations I'll make is, why don't you consider switching this person to another ward to give that person a fresh start? Because there's all this ward politics and bitter conflict. And see, say you're on two to ones in a state hospital, two staff, three shifts a day watching you, preventing you from swallowing stuff. Well, guess what? They still find stuff to swallow. And when they do, it's a victory because they have been able to defeat the intrusive overseers. So that's an internal reinforcer there. These folks often have very little power and uh, that can be a secondary reinforcer, but usually the main thing is to escape the toxic environment. And that's why it makes sense to transfer them to another ward if that's available, to give them a fresh start with new caregivers and a uh, whole new set of faces and new patients too, because the patients get into their own political competitions. As you can tell, I talk about some pretty strange things, and almost nobody else talks about this because, first of all, it's not very pleasant, and second of all, most people aren't exposed to these kind of things. But to me, these are the people I hang out with. I have great compassion for them, and when they escape this hell, it's extremely inspiring. I do appreciate that point there about the compassion that you have for them, because I know we're talking about some really difficult content in this episode specifically. And one of my desires is for people listening to have that empathy, that compassion for people that are in such distress that they would ingest a foreign body or something that could harm them 
in order to escape or someone that's in such distress, whether it's related to abuse or something else that they would disfigure themselves intentionally to avoid social interactions. So people are quick to judge those individuals. Every time I do a presentation, I quote you using a low-key, dispassionate demeanor and a respectful curiosity when talking about self-injury. So for people listening, that's a shout out to Dr. Walsh. Yeah, boy, I really appreciate you remembering that verbatim. I have this experience over and over again when I do consultations. They'll say, oh, this adolescent won't talk to you. They don't like talking about this stuff. They don't talk to anybody. And I say, okay. Then I go in and they talk a blue streak for an hour. And it's because I use a low-key, dispassionate demeanor and respectful curiosity They can tell I'm comfortable hanging out with that place of self-injury or suicidality or a combination of both and so on. And uh, they can tell I'm non-judgmental. But if you're going to help people with self-injury, regardless if it's common low lethality or this more extreme stuff, you've got to get to a place of comfort and being low-key and being dispassionate, but also compassion. So you just mentioned a very, very the foundation of working with people who's with self-injury. Yeah. Not only working with them, but just knowing them as, as people, I think, too, where most people don't intentionally try to be judgmental or try to come across as judgmental and be like, oh, I'm not judging. In reality, they are without realizing it. And I think like what you're saying, keeping that at the forefront of our minds, again, I'll say it again, that low-key dispassionate demeanor and respectful curiosity that I will often repeat in my presentations and lectures on self-injury. You have mentioned abuse a number of times today, particularly relationship to the atypical severe self-injury that requires medical attention, that subtype, as well as the unusual body areas. I don't know if we have the data on this, but do you find that those who engage in atypical severe self-injury are more likely to have histories of abuse than those who engage in low lethality, common, non-suicidal self-injury? It's very common. There's a progression that people will start off with the low lethality, common stuff. And it takes a while to move towards atypical severe. It takes a fair amount of courage or desperation to do that kind of damage or unusual body parts. So it's quite typical. There's a progression. I did a study with the statistical analysis done by Leonard Dorfler at Assumption College at my agency with 456 individuals, adults. And we looked at 28 risk behaviors, suicide attempts, atypical severe self-injury, self-injury, substance misuse, risk-taking behaviors, eating disorders, being sexually abused in the past, being sexually abused in the present, and so on. And an interesting thing came out of the analysis, which was that atypical severe was associated with more other problems than any of the other categories. It seems to be a marker for severe psychopathology and complex multi-behavioral problems. I call it poly-self-destructive Now, I did one study with 456 people, and then uh, Thomas Joyner heard me present on that data and offered to have some of his grad students some additional, do some additional analyses, which I wasn't capable of. And they sound much more sophisticated analyses, but they found the, the same conclusion, which it appears to be a marker for significant psychopathology, and it probably should be differentiated from common low lethality self-injury. And then you could leap to this conclusion, which is only conceptual or theoretical. But Thomas Joyner, as you know so well, says that it's hard to kill yourself. It takes a lot of practice. You have to acquire the fearlessness to kill yourself because it's hard to override the instinct for self-preservation, right? It takes habituation or practice, he says. Well, conceptually, anybody who's capable of atypical severe self-injury, 
that's such an alarming behavior. And it's often coupled with a long history of common self-injury and other self-destructive check marks that I mentioned before. So naturally they're habituated. And at times, if things go really wrong, they're probably gonna present with suicidal behavior as well. Yet the behaviors are different. So I know we talk awfully fast, but I can't help myself. I often talk about using a hierarchy of risk with these people who have a lot of self-destructive behaviors in combination. Usually at the top would be suicide, right? Because that's life-threatening. Mm -hmm. And then a typical severe might be next, unless that person happens to be an opiate addict at danger of killing themselves by overdose. And then common low lethality, still a important major problem, particularly since we know it's associated with suicide attempts if it persists. But I would argue if you're working with a client and they've got a hierarchy of risk, if the first thing they can do is eliminate suicide attempts, well, hallelujah, that's major progress. Now let's move on to atypical severe. And I will say to them, you know, they want to get out of hospitals or they want to graduate from a group home and go to their own apartment. And I'll say to them, hey, look, atypical severe is not community level of care. That's group home or it's hospital level of care. In the community, if you present with some superficial self-injury, usually programs can handle that. That could be managed in outpatient treatment. Now, that could be a controversial topic. Some people want to see a lot more supervision and hospitalizations for superficial self-injury. I personally view that as often unnecessary. But now we're going in a different direction. But you get the point about here's suicide over here, the most severe. Atypical severe is here and common low lethalities over here. So we sort of got a continuum, but it's not necessarily one that's progressive for everybody. And by the way, atypical severe, if I see that in a mid early to mid adolescent, I'm very, very alarmed because that's a rare time for, for that severity to surface. And that kid's in big, big trouble. You mean there, there'd be higher risk for later attempting suicide? Yes, but they're just in so much misery to be capable of that kind of physical harm, that kind of damage, that kind of body part assault. Yeah. One of the ways I talk about that is a lot of things have to have gone wrong for people to be presenting with atypical severe self-injury. That's not just, oh, having a bad day. Mm -hmm. That's some sort of chronic misery, mistreatment, deprivation, neglect. It's a rare person that presents with atypical severe that doesn't have some sort of trauma background. In many ways, those particular individuals are my are my greatest heroes because to, to see them to get out of all that and make sense of it and put it behind them. And then all that energy they're spending around on keeping trauma memories at arm's length or trying to fend off self-injury urges, it becomes available for positive activities. And wow, what a great flowering it is to watch that. I imagine having worked with so many of these individuals, you've gotten to see some people really overcome some of these hurdles. I know it's hard work, but I imagine it could be really rewarding when you do see someone really overcome, that whether it's trauma, atypical severe self-injury, to live a life fully functional and not as in misery. I'm not sure how many experiences you get to see of that, because I know usually when they're doing that, then we stop seeing them. We don't get to see, get to witness them at that point because they no longer need treatment or seek therapy. In my agency, the trajectory, we often did long-term work because they'd be coming out of psychiatric hospitals. They might go into a group home first, then they graduate to their own apartment, but with all kinds of supports reaching out to them. So we often would treat, treat them for years in different settings, but offering a variety of treatments as they go through those different settings. So one of the blessings of these, this type of settings are you get to see long-term trajectories. 
Yeah, I know where I work, since I work primarily with children and adolescents now, once they become adults, go off to college, then I, I don't get to see how they're doing anymore. So every once in a while, I'll, I'll have someone reach out to me and say, hey, remember me? And I'm like, of course I do. And it's always great to hear from them, and especially when they're doing so well. Yeah, those are the those are the best when people choose to be in touch and let you know how they're doing. It's uh, the ultimate gift. Exactly. So it, it sounds like there is a higher incidence of trauma and abuse among those who engage in atypical self-injury. And you had also mentioned substance use. Is there a greater prevalence of substance use disorders among those who engage in atypical self-injury or is it? I'm not sure. One reason being someone's substance misuse, I hear that's the preferred term now. Okay. We were talking about terms changing over time and I hear substance misuse is more popular now than substance abuse. So I'm trying to keep up the times, you know. See, in Massachusetts, Department of Mental Health and the Department of Public Health are separate agencies. And if you've got a major substance misuse problem, you'll go into Department of Public Health. However, if they present with uh, atypical severe self-injury or suicidality, they'll often get kicked back into Department of Mental Health because they're deemed to have a primary mental health disorder as opposed to a substance misuse disorder. But I don't have data about the substance abuse frequency of the folks I'm talking about. It stands to reason that people in intense distress try to regulate in all kinds of different ways. So substances could easily be one. Eating disorders could be another. Common self-injury could be another. Atypical severe could be yet another. And you're talking about these behaviors on a continuum, referencing Thomas Joyner's interpersonal theory of suicide and acquiring the capability. We do know that self-injury is, common self-injury is a risk factor for attempting suicide. Are individuals who engage in atypical severe self-injury at greater risk for attempting suicide than, say, those who engage in the more common forms of self-injury? Well, no one's done a comparative study like that. My clinical impression would be certainly because, uh, they're so much more habituated. They've had so many more self-destructive acts. They have beaten down the instinct for self-preservation. Uh, so theoretically, one would say they're at greater suicide risk. And many of these folks have also attempted suicide. But that means using different methods, gunshot, overdose, hanging, jumping from a height, uh, et cetera, not the atypical severe methods, which won't kill them. Do we know how common atypical severe self-injury is in, the, in just the general population, like prevalence rates? I have no idea. I wish I knew if they present with the behavior, they don't end up in the general population for very long. One of the discussions related to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, is the possibility of including a non-suicidal self-injury disorder, an NSSI disorder, uh, which is a work in progress. It's a proposed, obviously we know a proposed diagnosis requiring further study before actually being a diagnosis. Do you see any utility in including a different diagnosis in maybe the DSM for atypical severe self-injury? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I've never even thought about that. I'm a behaviorist. I actually don't have much interest in diagnoses. I'm interested in doing a very careful, specific behavioral analysis with each individual and putting a label on them. I often find it does nothing much more than stigmatize them. And sometimes you have individuals saying, oh, I'm borderline. Uh, and that is very sad when they accept a diagnosis as a, like their middle name. However, I did hear a good justification for an NSSI diagnosis once, which is if there's an actual diagnosis, then funding is more likely from grantors 
because they often require a diagnostic specificity in order to fund a project. So I went, oh, okay. Well, that's not really a treatment justification. It's a funding research justification, but that's important too. You know, other people uh, think my uh, stance on diagnoses is ridiculous, but uh, the other thing is my agency, we don't really bill insurance. We have Department of Mental Health or other governmental contracts. So we don't need to put down a diagnosis in order to get reimbursed for that claim, which is a lot of people have to do that for a basic reimbursement mechanism. In some ways, that means data are lost because we don't have a diagnostic ranking for all these individuals in our care. But you're sort of asking the wrong person about that. There are other people who are very adamant about the NSSI diagnosis will be a major step forward. And okay. Yeah, I know it's it's open for debate for sure. There's pros and cons. And I think like you had mentioned insurance companies, what if someone doesn't meet criteria for any mental health disorder, but wants to stop their self-injury and wants help for it? Well, will their insurance even cover that? Because if it's not a diagnosis, oftentimes insurance companies yeah. won't. That's a good point. Earlier, you had, again, mentioned the hierarchy of risk. So when discussing clinical guidelines for treating individuals who engage in atypical severe self-injury, so you suggest, one, a hierarchy of risk, and two, a sequential multimodal treatment or a series of evidence-based treatments sequentially. Can you tell us what you mean by these? You can start with hierarchy of risk if you'd like or the other. Sure. Why don't I talk about a logical sequence of evidence-based practices? Excellent. So in 99, I was at American Association of Suicidology, and Marsha Linehan was getting the Lifetime Achievement Award, and I was in the audience, and she made the disclosure, which as far as I know, was the first time she did it, about her major mental health challenges as an adolescent and how she spent a lot of time in psych hospitals, including seclusion. And she said, I decided back then I'm going to get out of this hell, and I'm going to come back and get everybody else. Mm. And... uh even though that was 1999, I always tear up when I say those words. So it was so inspiring. And then she went on to say something really important. She said DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, was no longer being used just with people with borderline personality disorder. It was being used with all kinds of people with pervasive emotion dysregulation. And I'm in the audience, I'm going, holy shit, that's like 60, 70% of my clients at the agency. So we wouldn't be thinking about BPD, but Emotion dysregulation, well, yeah, they're all over the place. So I went back determined to implement DBT, which we did. And we did it in a series of programs, doing it according to protocol with adolescents, with young adults, with people, adults coming out of state hospitals, with people with developmental disabilities, with head injured women in wheelchairs. We were doing it with all kinds of individuals. And it was immensely gratifying. Then somebody from the Department of Mental Health I was talking to one day, and she said, you know, you ought to do another evidence-based practice for the people that have problems more related to psychosis. Because DBT is not a great match for psychosis. It's about emotion dysregulation. And that may not be the primary problem for people who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or uh, other related. So we learned another evidence-based treatment called illness management and recovery, which comes from a, a luminary, a great contributor psychologist named uh, Kim Muser. And we implemented that in a lot of group homes where there were a lot of people with that kind of mental health challenge, namely psychosis. And it involved them identifying goals, recovery goals, figuring out what contributed to their stability, understanding whether medications were for them or not, but it was a very structured way to deal with things like voices, hallucinations, delusions, 
Then I went to another conference and Kim Muser's presenting again, and he rolls out cognitive restructuring for PTSD. And it's a CBT form, but it really grabbed me because he created it for those who can't handle exposure. For those that don't know, exposure is the most evidence-based treatment for PTSD in the world, prolonged exposure, ednafoa. The thing about exposure though, is you have to talk about the details of your trauma and you have to do it over and over again. And if you have 20 traumas, well, you got to talk about all 20. And my clients couldn't handle that. When we would try to ramble into their traumas without a structured protocol, they dissemble, they disintegrate. And what Muser's treatment did does is focuses on the thoughts and beliefs derived from the trauma, such as these are some of the common thoughts that people who have complex PTSD have. I must be a bad person for people to mistreat me over and over again. My body's contaminated and dirty. I must be an abuse magnet for so many different people to, to hurt me like this. I told about what my father was doing to me and it broke up the family. Self-blame, very fundamental theme for many people with trauma. Mm -hmm. So we implemented this much later than DBT. So we eventually figured out there was a way to sequence these treatment for the really impaired people who had a lot of self-destructive behaviors in combination, including atypical severe. We would usually start them with DBT because the first thing they need to learn is identify their emotions, how to manage them, how to sit with them. They need to learn the interpersonal effectiveness piece. Mindfulness was good in terms of achieving some peace of mind. So usually we'd, in our programs, we'd have people do DBT for six months to a year. And then if they had complex PTSD, we'd hand them off to the PTSD treatment because they had the emotion regulation skills now to manage the PTSD stuff, even though it wasn't exposure. Or if they had problems with psychosis, we would start off with IMR and they might go into PTSD treatments as well. We also added CBT for psychosis to help people with major thought disorders and hallucinations. And that came from Kingdon, Kingdon and Turkington out of the UK. Uh, they're the best. They have the most evidence-based treatment for psychosis that's been developed. So these are the kind of things we were doing. As you said, we found that if we teach emotion, emotion regulation first and they become adept at that, then they can sit with the trauma stuff, even though they're not doing exposure and diffuse that stuff and come out in good shape. And we did other things like supported employment and you gotta not just be in your head all the time, you gotta go out and get involved in the world in the world as well. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about a sequence of evidence-based practices. So I was very proud of the fact that we implemented all those things. We were really known in this Commonwealth of Massachusetts for having more evidence-based treatments in place in a public sector setting, governmentally funded, than anybody else because we were we were zealots about this we were like totally into it it was our mission how great would it be for other states to be able to offer the, these kinds of programs to the extent that yours has and it makes sense to do the sequential treatment especially for those that are engaging in atypical severe self-injury that are really suffering to be able to address almost like the low-hanging fruit or the, the basics of like emotion regulation to be able to go to the next step to the cognitive restructuring changing those thoughts associated with trauma or whatever negative thoughts that are there and i i suspect that there would be utility in using this for common non-suicidal self-injury as well by the way that cr for ptsd is a 12 to 16 week treatment so it's short term very structured, manualized, but doesn't go on forever. 
And it wouldn't be unusual sometimes when, when we would be treating clients in our agencies who are living in a group home, is one of the staff would come with them from the group home if they were allowed to by the individual. They would sit on the sessions so that they could prompt and encourage the homework between sessions. And they also felt like they weren't all alone, that somebody they spent time with hours and hours every week in the group home was there with them. They felt accompanied and supported. And that was an effective add-on. We did that. We treated a lot of people who would be brought down to us from the state hospital too. It was immensely exciting. Yeah. 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 I just wish we had, I don't know of any programs like that here in Texas, or maybe I'm just not aware they do exist, but. You got to start a little bit at a time and be committed to doing it really well in one location and then maybe add to it. Keep it going. It was one program. We started with one program and, and we just kept adding to it. Well, I'm sure you could probably talk on this topic for so long because you have so much experience and knowledge. Anything we haven't talked about related to atypical severe self-injury that you think would be important for us to know? Is there anything we haven't talked about? Well, any parent listening to this probably tuned off a long time ago when I got into some of the really extreme behaviors because most people don't want to sit there. I call it sitting with misery and a lot of people don't want to sit with misery. I get it. But let's put it this way to parents. It if you have a kid or you know of a kid who's self-injuring and uh, their self-injury gets worse and it gets to the point where it's requiring sutures or other kinds of medical attention, then that's an ominous sign and you better make sure you're getting comprehensive treatment for that child because that's not just simple outpatient care anymore once every other week trying to little, learn a little emotional regulation skills. Something's going on there that the self-injury is getting worse and it's getting to an alarming and more rare place. I would comment that. That's for sure. And what about those cases where the self-injury is intentional, but the severity is worse than anticipated? So like a teen may self-injure more superficially, but then gets into an argument with their parent and then accidentally hurts themselves so bad that they need that medical attention that may result in visible scarring more severe so than their previous behavior. Is this different than the atypical severe self-injury? I hear that example a lot. I don't really believe in accidents. You know, I mean, yeah, there are car accidents and bike accidents and the like, but if they do more than they expect it to do, to me, that's often on reflection. But in the moment, the distress was so high that they were capable of it. And they may try to take it back or minimize or say, I didn't intend to do that. But I tend to look at the behavior, not what people say quite so much. And that's going to be a controversial statement, too. But first and foremost, what's the damage? I want to know what the damage is. And then that damage is an equation about the level of distress, in my opinion. You follow me? I do. I do follow you. And I know, you, like you said, you're a behaviorist at heart here. So that's a very convincing. But I do recognize, too, other people would disagree, like you had mentioned. But you make a great point. And actually, yeah. it's challenging me to consider, like, in my work when this happens, because this, this happens. And, and how am I going to conceptualize it and make sense of it and definitely not minimize it? Like you said, look at the behavior, because if they're capable of doing it now, then they're capable of doing it again in similar levels of distress. Well, so let's look at it behaviorally. Say they do it. And there's a time when they're quite upset or they miscalculate and they do more damage than they intended. And they go, holy shit, I didn't want to do that. And they never do that again. Well, that's credible that it was a mistake. I get it. If it happens again and they do it a level of damage they didn't mean to again, well, that's not so credible, is it? Starting a pattern. It's a pattern. It suggests the distress is getting worse and they need help with that. Yeah. I mean, as you can tell, I'm opinionated, but I always say, until I'm presented with some new data, and then I change my mind and become opinionated about that. 
So. <laughs> well, I mean, I value your opinion, and I know a lot of people listening do. And actually, before we get into the very end, as far as asking any additional comments that you'd have for maybe more so for parents and professionals and people with lived experience, I mean, with your work over 30 years, and we're talking decades, and one of the first writers, publishers on this topic, you've seen it all. And I would hate to miss an opportunity to learn from that or for our listeners to be able to hear lessons learned from the decades of this and the wisdom that you have that you could share with us, what would you like to share like with people after all these years of research and experience and expertise? Well, first and foremost, people get better. Even the most impaired are capable of resilience and they're the most inspiring of the bunch. So never give up. There was a study of suicide years ago from the 60s. Unfortunately, I don't remember the author, but it found that people in therapy were more likely to kill themselves if their therapists were discouraged or if they kept arriving late for sessions. So I'm an optimist. And uh, even with severely impaired people, I believe they can do it. This client I worked with for years, and I tried to do uh, all kinds of fancy evidence-based practices with her, and she'd attempted suicide and 100 sutures on her arms and tried to drown herself and all kinds of extreme behaviors. Eventually, she got out of all of that because she dealt with the traumas at the hand of her father. She became a nurse and raised two children and a solid citizen, contributing member of society and all that. I said to her, so what helped? What helped you the most as we were working together? She didn't say, oh, mindfulness skills or uh, cognitive restructuring. She said, when you used to say to me, I have faith in you. I didn't remember saying that more than a few times in a couple of years. You know, I have faith in you. But people, if you convey optimism, they hear it. If you convey confidence, if you convey respect, all those things are so important. Yeah. So to kind of bring it all together, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians, like therapists, psychologists, social workers, and or researchers? Well, researchers, I would really ask, move beyond all these college samples. They're important. College students are important. But focus on clinical samples some of the time because they're really neglected and they're people too. And research is the only way to, you know, I'm making stuff up about atypical severe. But if someone actually studied it over and over again, we'd learn a lot. That would be one request. I think the main thing I encounter with young professionals self-injury is they're, they're freaked out by it. They're frightened. They're confused. They're alarmed. They're shocked. And a lot of what I do when I do day-long or half-day trainings is I just tell a lot of stories in the midst of teaching principles. I try to desensitize them and get them to the point where it's just another human behavior. And you got to get behind the shock. Beyond the shock, you've got to sit with them and enter their psychological space. And you got the message a long time ago, which I'm very grateful for. Low-key, dispassionate, demeanor, and respectful curiosity. If you can do that, that's the bedrock. And it means you've gotten over the place of aversion to a place of acceptance and encouragement. And that's the dilemma for a lot of young professionals is they're understandably shocked and taken aback by the behavior and they wanna flee it. Guess what? Our clients, our individuals have dealt with so many challenges involving other people. They've got antennae that pick up the interpersonal vibes very, very sensitively. And if you're uncomfortable with it, they know it and you're done. Or maybe not done, but it's going to take some rebuilding. Yeah. So, yeah, get to a place of comfort. Get to a place of intellectual curiosity and empathy. And uh, you can help them. And it's just very simple advice, but it, it all kind of starts there. 
And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents? You've already shared a little bit. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yes. The key thing for parents to understand if they encounter a child who's self-injuring is, number one, understand it's usually not about suicide. If it's common low lethality, self-injury, cutting, scratching, skin picking, hair pulling, those behaviors aren't going to kill your child, but they do suggest emotional dysregulation. They need help with their emotions. Some of those emotions are probably coming from the relationships with the parents because the parents are a very important part of their day-to-day life. So they want to learn to manage self-injury with a low-key dispassionate demeanor. Why? Because if they handle it with hysteria and condemnation or weeping, what happens? That emotionally dysregulates the child further. So they're all more they're all the more likely to present with the very behavior you don't want. You know, when I was doing family therapy with parents of adolescents, I would always say the same thing to them. You know, they they give so much advice. I'd say you should only give advice about once a month. Learn how to listen. Mm. You gotta listen. They would leap in solving the problem right away because they cared so much about the kid. But they skipped the step of listening to the kid. If they listen, all of a sudden they might learn something. So it's not exactly uh, extremely sophisticated advice, but then again, maybe it is. Yeah, that's good advice. And I have one more question. What would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury, whether atypical severe self-injury or the typical more common self-injury? Well, advice for people with lived experience. First of all, be patient with us professionals. Just keep teaching us. We're, We're a little slow to learn, but if you keep letting us know what you need, we'll get it eventually. A couple of years ago, I consulted on a young woman in one of our group homes who had keloidic scars all over both arms, lots and lots of atypical self-injury and a great deal of substance misuse. But she also had remarkable strengths. And she was just beginning training to become a peer specialist, meaning a peer counselor for people with mental health problems. And I told her at the time, two years ago, I said, you know, you got a lot going for you. Pretty soon you're gonna have your shit together. And when you do, you be in touch with me and we'll train together. So two months ago, she got in touch with me. She said, I remembered what you told me. And I got my shit together, Barry, she said. (laughs) And I said, okay, you want to train with me? So we did last month. She came in and did an hour of my six-hour training. I interviewed her about her recovery and how she overcame substance use and uh, what she's doing about her tattoos. Uh, One of the things she's doing about her incredible scarring on her arms is uh, she's getting a She's getting full arm tattoos, which are going to express herself in a different way and not be quite so visually shocking to the general public. But here she is working in a group home with uh, mental health clients and teaching them in ways that the average counselor with a bachelor's or whatever can't do because she's got profound lived experience and a lot of lessons to uh, share. One thing I would say to individuals is you can get better. I know you can, but think about being a peer counselor and giving back to what you've learned because you can you can bring something to the table that nobody else can. Wow, what a positive note. Actually, that's such a perfect ending to this conversation because I know it's been a really hard topic and I know you had mentioned having to sit with misery sometimes. Sitting with misery is hard to do, but so important. I think this topic lends to that, but being able to bring it all together with such a story of hope. I've heard similar stories too with sleeves of tattoos and just redeeming the the scarring. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Walsh, for joining us. It's an honor and a privilege, and I wish you the best and hopefully have the chance to talk to you and see you in the near future at IS. 
Great to see you. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you uh, in person upcoming at one of the conferences. Thanks for your interest. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we're giving away Dr. Walsh's book at the conclusion of the month. To enter the drawing, write a positive review on any podcast platform and give us a five-star rating, one entry per platform. Screenshot your review and rating and message it to me on Instagram or Twitter by Monday, May 31st at Doc Westers. Spread the word as we raise awareness and knowledge about self-injury and mental health. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.